Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at propellermag. Before we begin today's program, I wanted to update you on the Between the Covers Patreon campaign, which has surpassed its second of four milestones to secure its future sustainability as a podcast, and do a shout out to some of the recent contributors, Chelsea, a writer in Chicago, Lachlan, a filmmaker in Australia, Ofure, a geographer in California, and sort of a librarian who left a great iTunes ranking and rating, another way you can support the show. If you're curious about the Patreon campaign, about becoming a supporter of the show, you can go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Between the Covers. You can also find other means and methods to support the program by going to davidnaman.com slash support. And you can check out the websites of all sorts of uh, creative and interesting people who have supported the show so far at davidnaman.com slash patrons. Enjoy today's program. Stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever to fruition, was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning, and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is Portland writer Monica Drake. Drake's articles, essays, and short fiction have appeared in the New York Times, The Sun, Three Penny Review, and Oregon Humanities, among many others. And she is the author of two novels, Clown Girl from Hawthorne Books and The Stud Book from Hogarth, Monica Drake teaches creative writing at the Pacific Northwest College of Art in Portland and is here today to talk about her first collection of short fiction entitled The Folly of Loving Life, published by Future Tense Books. Electric Literature describes the collection as full of knowing, darkly funny stories that are collapsing under the weight of the past and are auguring an inevitable, painful future. The Portland Mercury says that Drake mines the collective anxieties of a burgeoning city where development stalks the street like a nocturnal predator. And the Willamette Week suggesting that The Folly of Loving Life may be the best book to hand to people who want to understand the city of Portland says that reading The Folly of Loving Life is a bit like finding a beautiful painting of a wound. Welcome to Between the Covers, Monica Drake. Thank you so much, David. So the stories in The Folly of Loving Life are interconnected. We follow the lives of individuals in one family through time, told from different perspectives. And it seems to me like the relationship between the two sisters, Vanessa and Lou, is the emotional heart of the collection. So maybe we could start with 
you talking just a little bit about who these two characters are? Um, well, they, they are. The, the book, I would say, is about um, the tension between characters over time, although it's not directly addressing that tension. Uh, there's very There are very few spots in the book where the characters are in the same room, um, but they're together in the, the pieces that refer back to their early, early life, and they're together again in the pieces that are at the most um, recent within the narrative of the book. Uh, in between, they are very estranged from each other. Um, they've kind of gone on their different paths, but they still reflect each other's tensions. Um, so they're looking for different ways to live in the world. Um, there's a story in the, in the collection called the Arboretum that illustrates their mother's instability and their father's um, kind of lack of accountability and uh, that, that plants a seed that they have na to navigate as they go forward. Well, there's this type of character that, or type of people that you like to characterize, I think, in all three of your books, um, that they share something in common. They don't have life figured out. They're on the margins in some way. Their life trajectories aren't on track. They're off the rails a little bit. Um, they're, they're not following a pathway of a conventional uh, successful life in a conventional sense. And you might call them misfits uh, the way Lydia Yuknovich might, might um, describe um, these characters. Uh, could you tell us what draws you do to characters like this? Well, maybe I don't really know anyone who has life figured out. <laughs> I am curious who those people are. <laughs> um, I think they might be kidding themselves, whoever those people are, but maybe yeah. I'm just, uh, that's just my perspective. Um, but they are characters who have a vision, and it's an alternative vision, perhaps. And they're, they're largely just trying to build the lives that they want. And I think that um, starting with Clown Girl, there is something to me about how the conventions of capitalism kind of steamroll the smaller dreams that humans might hold on to. Um, clown Girl is very much about a, a woman who just believes in clown work, and um, that vision is crushed by uh, daily finances and and things along those lines um i was kind of having fun with that and and joking in some ways but i also feel like it's a really valid and persistent um dynamic you know i i, I myself in some ways just want to enjoy life's uh smaller sensory and and uh, interrelational um pleasures but uh but there's you know capitalism right yeah well, that brings us to to the city of Portland, which is a character also in in the book. And when you talk about capitalism crushing smaller dreams, and and I think about you as one of the main literary bards of the city, of, of particularly of the old Portland, uh, uh, an old Portland that was more off the grid, sort of the forgotten Western city that where small dreams were flourishing. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like uh, that city mirrors what's going on for the two sisters, Vanessa and Lou, in a lot of ways. So there's this conversation mm -hmm. in, this, mm -hmm. in your collection between the setting and the characters. Mm -hmm. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what Portland was like in the past. What was Portland like in the 80s and early 90s um, that, I th that I think is radically different than the way it is now? Yeah, you know, I was fortunate to be um, a young person here when things were so much less expensive. When I look back, I can kind of, uh, you can kind of imagine um, a certain bounty even 
in that uh, this is sort of funny, but happy hours here used to be uh, big spreads of like nacho platters that were completely free and nobody ever checked ID to see if you were underage, right? Now we have all these great happy hours that are like little small plates for a small fee and everyone checks ID. It's kind of tightened down. But back then you could go into a bar and there'd be like, I mean, that sounds so silly to bring that up now, but it, it, it's kind of a joking bounty, right? This yeah. picture of... Uh, of clubs full of, of um, but also apartments were just so much less. My apartment, I had a $135 apartment. And um, what that allowed to do is just have the creative flexibility to build an alternative life and uh, and let your job be a more minor part of your identity uh, and not do everything with the idea that it has to make money. Um, I've, I've met a lot of people who, who are locked into their jobs um, it, it, pri- prioritizing money. And... Um, that just wasn't the, you know, the the way that I was part of back yeah. then. And there's a, a lot of different sort of cultural subcultures then. I think mm-hmm. of like the bars of working class white blues that was mm-hmm. very big mm-hmm. in the early 90s mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, and also a very different um, set of hardships, mm-hmm. I think, it, it back in the early 90s than now. Well, you can just look at little details like um, like a one-speed bike, right? A one-speed now is kind of a hipster um, sig- signifier in certain ways, or or the whole fixie thing. Um, but back then, a one-speed was a bike you could buy for I for six dollars if you were lucky. Uh, the red, white, and blue stores had one-speeds in piles, uh, and so some of the culture that that we live with now is an outgrowth of um, really cheaper times. But it's we're left with the sort of overpriced. Um, l- less purposeful rendition of it, I would say. Yeah. Well, you've said that it was a combination of permissiveness and neglect in Portland that led to both creative and destructive urges. And I wondered if this is what you were going for with Vanessa and Lou as characters as well, because we have um, little parental guidance um, and we observe both der- destructive and creative urges that come out of the sisters sort of figuring out how to live mm-hmm. without mm-hmm. Uh, the presence of, of parents, essentially, for much of the collection. That's right. And I, th- I think that really is, I think that really is um, a consistent th- thread or theme in my work. Uh, yeah, I think you've tuned into exactly um, part of the vision. Mm. Yeah. In, in the story that you mentioned, Arboretum, which is one mm-hmm. of my favorite stories, mm-hmm. um, the parents want their own piece of paradise. And this is before the new Portland is, ar- is arising. They, they want to live outside the city in a farmhouse um, with the promise of, of peace and solitude and, na- and communion with nature, perhaps. That's right. Um, but even then, they're being encroached by sort of an inexorable development with car lots and pet stores coming up against the border of their property. Yes. Was that, was that going on as a as a phenomenon, even, even early on? Well, I think that, um, in, you know, in my experience, the seventies were full of that all over the place, right. In, 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 in Oregon and other places too. When I was young, I, we moved, we went back and forth between Oregon and Michigan. And I saw it in both of those spots in particular. Um, it was just an era of really bad, um, planning and it's still going on in a lot of parts of the country. And I just personally, it just makes me feel, um, really creepy like I really hate that feeling where you've got the beauty of nature you can look you can look at fields like now if you drive out towards Hillsboro say or if you drive toward Tualatin you can see these gorgeous fields with amazing field grass and the random creature uh surrounded by 
uh, big box stores and parking lots, and, and they always have those, like, for lease, we'll build to suit. And something about that just pains my heart. It's like if yeah. nobody's asking for it, if nobody's asking, well, just let it be. You know, I understand that's how money works, but I just feel sad for it because we have abandoned uh, warehouses, other places, right? Right. And there's also the sense, I think, that this book shares with your last book, the stud book, um, which deals a little bit with an ambivalence around human reproduction, among other things, in relationship to the environment. Yes. Um, this book, you have this you have this interesting quote in a different story. Let's see if I can pull it up. Um, the motive of all pathogens is to reproduce. Same thing with humans. We just have baby showers. That's right. Which is hilar- right. <laughs> hilarious and tragic at the same time. I know. But... Um, it does point to this sense that maybe even instinctually against our better uh, our better selves we 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 keep doing this well there there are um twice as many people on the planet now as there were when i was about 10 years old and it you know that that's a scary thing it seemed like plenty of people back then right um that's yeah, a lot of people that is a lot uh, of people and i i think about that i think about that as a parent um, I think about that as a consumer, uh, about a person who has a house, right? What kind of house are we going to live in? Are we going to live in a house that um, changes the landscape or that makes use of what's already here? Yeah. In case you just tuned in, we're talking to author Monica Drake about her collection of short stories, The Folly of Loving Life from Future Tense Books. So back to that first story, Arboretum, which in a way feels like the Garden of Eden story, mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. we have the fall from from this attempt towards towards paradise at the beginning, and the rest of the time we're outside of this paradise. That's can, right. Can you talk a little bit about the mother and what's going on for her in Arboretum? What which sort of sets the stage and colors later what we experience with the sisters. That's right. Um, yeah, the mother comes out of my thoughts of both being I you know I am a mother and I've also been a child and I've also. Uh, lived, I've had the fortune of living in places where I could feel uh, an attachment to individual trees on the property, right? Differentiate between a crab apple and a willow and a maple and a myrtle here in Oregon and and, and feel like all those trees were so significant and uh, almost human. Um, But I think having kids and trying to make a perfect relationship between the children and the planet is incredibly stressful. Um, There's an anxiety in trying to overreach your authority. And as a parent, you have an incredible amount of um, responsibility that says, I'm going to take care of these children, but you can only do so much. And so this mother is trying her best to connect her children with the land and with paradise and with Eden and with her idea of an idealized um, way to grow up. But the house itself is an old house, and she's a little overly tuned into that feeling that um, people have come and gone, lived and died, been crushed in their own way. And um, she's she's having some problems. She's unstable. She's unstable. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I was reading something that wasn't into the story or mm-hmm. if um, or if perhaps it was because of what I was reading at the time. So I'm going to do a little... Uh, mm-hmm a little explanation of something that I saw and I want, I just wanted to hear your thoughts, but it's sure. going to seem a little tangential, yeah, a little yeah. tangential at the beginning. But while I was reading, I was wondering sometimes if the mother was really the only person who wasn't crazy in the story. Mm-hmm. I know she, mm-hmm. she hears voices. Mm-hmm. And so she's portrayed later as someone with mental illness. But mm-hmm. while I was inside mm-hmm. 
that story and not in the later mm-hmm. stories, mm-hmm. I was wondering, maybe she is hearing something that's real. Mm-hmm. And what I mean is, um, at the same time I was reading Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass, mm-hmm. coincidentally, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and in the, in, in the introduction by Harold Bloom, they're talking about the influence of what's called the Second Great Awakening in America, which I had never heard of before. So I was reading about that also, and it's this revivalist movement in the early 1800s where people believed when they came to America, it was all sort of couched in this belief that history was starting over. This was mm-hmm. the this was the new Eden, and there were all these good things that came out of sort of a willful erasure of history. Um, the there were black people preaching to white people. Women were really involved in these revivalist movements. They were abolitionists and um, about uh, the rights of disabled people. And Walt Whitman himself, who was influenced by this, and so was Emerson, he wanted to write poetry as if there had been no history of poetry before. Okay. And so he was trying to like erase, um, which seems on the one hand impossible, erase the idea that he could be influenced by something in the past. And the, and the Christianity that came out of it was erasing church history and trying to have this direct relationship with Jesus. Um, and I feel like that's also the story of the West. Mm-hmm. We have mm-hmm. everyone coming here and, uh, even now, so we're erasing old Portland, but even in the time of old Portland, we're sort of papering over what was there before rather than having a relationship with history, which seems like a very American like impulse, yes. good and bad. But the mother is hearing all these stories or all these voices of the people who were there before. And it just makes me feel like there's some way in which her mental illness is really attuning into um the nat- you know, indigenous culture that existed before her or who was in that house before her when nobody else is asking those questions. Uh, I, I don't know if I've taken I, this I love too that far. I, no, I love that idea. I think, um, you know, if you want to write a, a, a doctorate on that, that would be amazing. <laughs> uh, it's not, it's not untrue. It's you're bringing, you know, I, I hadn't read um, Whitman or, I mean, I've read Whitman, but I hadn't considered that in relation to this, but what you're saying could completely fit in the pattern um, it is that feeling of moving into a, a new house that's new to you, but might be a hundred years old and asking what happened here before. And maybe even since imagining that you can, um, feel it. And, you know, I think there's something, if you'll let me go out on a limb here and I admit I'm going out on a, on a fanciful limb, but there is something almost mystical about being, um, I don't know about being a dad, but I want to say about being a mom. There are so many transitions that happen when you have a child. And I'm not invalidating people who choose not to have children. I didn't have a child till I was 39. So I am very identified with childless by choice people too. But when my daughter was born, I know that for me, there were so many um, shifts in my worldview along with great uh, despair Uh, Studies show that, of course, um, people who have children are not happier than people who don't. And, of course, they're not happier. They're burdened with this responsibility of having brought a new life. But there's a different level of basically feeling the planet, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It's a a strange... So I wanted to sort of grant the mother full sensory um, permeability in terms of um, feeling that weight. That does make sense. Yeah. I mean, I thought of you as the writer in doing a similar thing to what the mother was doing in this story in the mm-hmm. sense that you're mm-hmm. excavating 
uh, disappeared voices, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and in this case, the disappeared voices mm-hmm. of old Portland. Mm-hmm. It feels like you're you're in the basement, like she is, um, listening to the voices while everyone else is on the upper floor uh, in their new condos. Thank you. And you know, there are other things. Like I don't know if you saw this X-ray of the redwoods in California. It showed how many of the redwoods are dying from the inside. It was a terrifying photo. Uh, I love the redwoods. They are already gone largely they're there but they're gone that did you see the picture i don't know about this i don't think enough people saw it but it's just dry down there and um that feeling that a tree can be standing and can be gone uh is a creepy one Mm. right they don't know if they can save a lot of these trees they're dead yeah Uh, but they look like they're alive um just that feeling of insecurity, great insecurity uh, for all the life that's standing here or has stood here. Uh, also, you know, there are a few different houses that I've known growing up that were really creepy. And um, I don't want to cite any of them in particular, <laughs> but uh, I think some of those houses are, are, are in that story. Huh. Well, maybe this is a good time for people to hear a, a little segment from one of the stories. Okay. Um, I could read from that story. Sure. That sounds okay. great. Okay. So this is from the Arboretum, the second story in the collection. Things started to change once Colin and I signed the papers. We bought a piece of land that locals had unofficially named the Arboretum. It was a narrow lot off the highway in the shadow of Mount Hood, an hour's drive outside of Portland in ordinary traffic. It was two acres of trees and an old farmhouse left standing in a strip of otherwise commercial development. It was a forgotten place, nearly abandoned, where the world was unpaved and luxurious, half-wild, rich with field grass and damp earth. I fell hard for the orchard out back. The orchard was like a cluster of people. Each tree found its own posture. The pear trees and cherry trees were shorter with stunted branches. The apple trees were particularly graceful. They cut against the sky in dark lines like ink drawings, sexy and decadent, with gnarled long branches bent under heavy fruit. I'd teach our children to draw out in the orchard as we raised our babies in this earthly paradise. They would know each tree like close relatives. The house would haunt their dreams when they grew up. I still walked the halls of my old childhood house at night. Who doesn't? It would be a gift to raise them close to the earth. Plus, there were no rules in that rural stretch. No covenants, restrictions, or homeowner association out to extract a fee and force us to mow what passed for a lawn. I was ready to leave the city behind. A tire swing made from a skinny Model T tire hung on a frayed rope. I pushed the tire, let it rock back and forth. Look, girls, I called out, but they'd fallen behind, making their way through tall grass and over rough ground. They were still so young, I couldn't imagine what more a kid would need than land, fresh apples in the fall, and a good swing. A crab apple sprawled like an open hand just beyond the side door of the house, fanning out in a collection of deep magenta and nearly black leaves. Another tree, tall and slim, was dressed in orange bark that peeled like sunburnt skin. There was a dense stand of pine in the way back, and every tree called out as a friend, sentient and welcoming. The front yard was shadowed by a weeping willow whose branches spanned a stretch wide enough to hide a whole stripped Cadillac behind a cascade of leaves. I know because I walked through the lush curtain of its dangling yellow branches. When I first passed under the tree, the leaves were impossibly thick. Just beyond that drape, though, everything opened up, and there was space to stand. It was a natural fort, 
and there was a caddy, probably parked in the shade on some distant summer day, against the tree's thick trunk now. The air smelled rich with dirt. I leaned over the foggy glass of the Cadillac's half-open window to peer in. A cat sat in the front seat, only it had quit being a cat a long time before. It was a skeleton tangled in the springs where the seat had rotted away while the bones waited for a driver. You've been listening to Monica Drake read from The Folly of Loving Life. You've said something that I really love about the structure of this collection. Um, You've pushed back against the notion of this book really being considered as a novel. Some people have suggested that you could consider this book a novel. Um, That the fragmentary narrative, one that allows for gaps and faded corners, was essential to the the project that you're doing. And that this weird in-between, this um, in-between between a short story collection and a novel, has a similar structure to a human life. So what does that mean? I, I think that's very um, evocative, and I'd love Thank to hear you, hear you yeah. talk a little bit about it, that. It seems, it seems right to me. It's the way um, there are these pieces uh, that stand against each other. Um, each piece has its own narrative arc, but uh, in relation to each other, they build a bigger story. And that does seem to me, at least for me, the way life works, where you have these periods of your life and you have these memories that stand out. And some of the memories might not be the biggest moments of your life, but they resonate against the rest of your experience. Um, And so you can put the pieces together that way without building in every moment of the narrative arc. And you can, um, with this book, I'm covering a pretty big time span, but I'm not writing um, what people would call an epic novel. Right. Yeah. And did you always know it was going to be a linked narrative collection, or did you discover it later and then need to either take things out or write towards holes in the collection to make it hold together? I did. It was the second process, the second half of what you're saying there. Um, I, I started writing this as stories, and um, and then later on started viewing it as a, as a collection, as a set, and at that point, I pulled pieces out, and I also wrote new work to fill it out. There's a long story in it called STD Demon, and that one is completely new. I was writing that up to almost publication date. Because this is small press, we could have a quick turnaround. Mm-hmm. Um, with a larger corporate press, there's, I'm, I'm guessing, but it seems like there's always about a year between when you turn in the manuscript and when it comes out. With this one, I finished STD Demon like uh, just 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 under the wire and um, and and turned it around within a couple weeks, yeah. you know. And that's sort of the the beauty of small presses. But um, I was both pulling things back and filling, pushing things forward to find the shape that it's that it's taken. Well, you mentioned this at the very beginning around how the sisters are not often in the same stories together. Mm-hmm. And it feels like it's connected to this um, use of gaps and fragmentation that mm-hmm. um, the book is really about their relationship in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's about a lot of other things too, but one of the primary things, and yet we don't see them interact very often. And similarly, the mother who looms over the collection and, and infuses the collection is rarely on stage mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in a way, it feels like these gaps are where the reader is is putting together those characters or those relationships with their own consciousness. It's it's it allows for this um, a manage, imaginative 
uh, participation of the reader. That's right. And that's a process that you can only come to over some aspect of time, either in real life or on the page, right? To say, okay, we've saw, we've seen this person as a child, and now we're seeing them as an adult. And what kind of adult have they become? And how do those two pieces uh, connect, right? You might yeah. miss all the years in between. Um, we see the mother basically twice, really, strongly. We see her through her friend who retells a story of her past before she was married, and then we see her enthusiasm for the property and how that kind of takes over. And yet she feels like she's in every story yeah. to me. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you mentioned the the haunting image of the Redwoods being mm -hmm. alive and, and dead at mm -hmm. the same time, mm -hmm. essentially, um, it reminds me of something you talked about around ghost signs, mm -hmm. your love of ghost signs. Oh, yeah. Um, and you compared your stories to ghost signs. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. what is a ghost sign mm -hmm. and and what is your attraction to ghost signs? And then how does that link into what you're doing in your stories? Ghost signs are those signs that you see painted on the side of old buildings. You know, when you have a brick building and people used to paint a sign for a, um, you know, 7-Up or a, 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 a saddle polishing product or whatever the product of the time was, but um, in some cities and small towns, you can come across, and the sign is still there. And I love it. Portland, there was a time when they were tearing down some buildings, and you'd see new signs painted on the side of old buildings, you know, that had been hidden between the two signs. I mean, between the, the sides of the two buildings. But um, I'm not the only one that takes a, a shine to those old painted signs. And there are some places where... A city or a or a, a, a developer or a um, you know an, an owner property owner has um, refurbished the sign so they brought it back to its original color and then it becomes something else it becomes a comment on itself where it it's bright and new uh, referencing something that doesn't exist anymore right uh, something you could have bought at one time um, I think that's a tricky business because they're so cool when they're relics, when they're go when they're fading, when when we're losing them, and they become a little bit hokey when they're brought back to life. And I can still appreciate that, but it's not the same thing. Yeah. And that just raises a, a question of how we value things as we're letting them go, or how we want to um, hang on to them in what what form. Um, and in some ways, that tension is something that I'm. You, you don't you might not see it in the book, but it runs all the way through the book. It's that question of letting things go and holding on to them at the same time and saying, where is the value in this gesture? Well, that's interesting because it goes back to your original talk, talk about capitalism in relationship to just living your life, that um, the issue of progress versus finding joy in things that aren't moving you towards progress. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I always vote for the latter. But, yeah. <laughs> um, one of the other f features of the collection is that you ha you periodically uh, punctuate it with what are called neighborhood notes, mm -hmm. uh, and they have a completely different voice mm -hmm. and a different purpose in the collection as a whole. So what are neighborhood notes? You know, those were really fun to write. Um, they, they started as something that I was writing on, on Facebook, really. I was just writing little short things. Like I would, there would be a moment that would just um, have a certain tenor that I would kind of, some ideas would come to me um, when I was walking the dog or moving around Portland. And they're meant to be evocative and compressed and, um, and reflective in some ways. And the editor, Kevin Samsel, who runs Future Tense, 
uh, suggested that I, he invited me to add some shorter work to, to this piece. And I just loved that and ran with it. Um, and I had them all ready. I just hadn't, it, I hadn't necessarily known if he would be receptive to yeah. tucking them in. And once he said that, I was like, here they are. And, uh, they were so fun to write because they, 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 as a writer, they allowed me to free up from the forward narrative and just be in the moment. And, um, I, I just, I like them. Because they're more like vignettes or pictorial yeah. snapshots. Sometimes they're just, they're just really image driven. Yeah. Yeah. Can, can you read one for us? Sure. I'd love to. Here's one. Here's one of the neighborhood notes sections called used goods. A five drawer dresser composing itself out in the alley, decomposing really, nearly composting its tiny press board feet where they stand in a cool puddle. Where's a paper bib shouting free? Watch out for splinters when you run to meet it, little lover. So many plans rush in, each thought golden as marriage. You could put your underwear in the top drawer once you wrestle at home, dry it off. Every drawer in this dresser is entirely different from the one below, the one above. The first drawer has grooves notched to match a cousin piece of furniture, long, long gone. It's a foster drawer, tucked cozy in a new home. One drawer is painted yellow. Another is made of thin, unpainted, cherry-stained wood. The dresser is a place for gathering the lost and found, like a church or a block party. Dear dresser, chest of drawers, you high boy, low boy, you're beautiful, but how do you hold yourself together? These are very good and used, used goods, a place where all mismatched socks can feel at ease. Now this traveling dresser, moving like a hitchhiker, needy and broken, has found a new home. When you open a drawer, you'll see a pen and a book of matches. You'll find an uncapped needle. You can use it. Go ahead. It's fine. How do we know it's fine to use? Because other people have. You've been listening to Monica Drake read from her new story collection, The Folly of Loving Life. All of your books, Monica, take place in Portland and evoke something about its distinctive in inhabitants. Um, and I was curious if the shift that Portland has gone through from a misfit city to an it city or from a, a ghost sign to a newly painted hokey ghost sign, <laughs> uh, a city that is very self-aware of itself. Yeah. There's a self-consciousness yeah. now to the way Portland puts itself forward. Um, if that makes painting or portraying these quirky quintessential characters more difficult or problematic or require or requires any sense of pause and reorientation as you do it um or does or does that not have any effect on on the writing for you it hasn't had any effect yet it hasn't had any effect yet because um I'm still coming from the same place and I still know so many fabulous people and there are still interesting corners I'm not sure what that that effect would would be except for to speak directly back to the city i am working on a collection of essays and some of the essays um reach back a number of years and some of them i'm writing currently i just had um, an essay about women and money that came out on a website called the establishment and was picked up by another website called uh, daily worth um, and those essays are um, directly aligned with the city as it stands now. And so that, that in some ways does show, um, a shift, a shift. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and if I, if I complete this and, and, um, 
I, I believe I'll, you know, I hope to find a publisher for it, but um, it will be a, a new direction for my writing, both because it's a collection of essays, but also because it is speaking back to the city in a little more direct terms, mm-hmm. I think. Well, one, one review of your, of your book said that these stories feel like they should be depressing, but but there is instead an atmosphere of bursting, pressure-cooked, irrepressible joy. And I thought that was an interesting characterization of this book. And I, I wonder if this unexpected joy in the face of a life that isn't on its surface one that should warrant mm-hmm. it. Because mm-hmm. these characters, if you were just to list what's going on in their lives, mm-hmm. you would sense a lot of uh, of m- maybe not misery, but um, discontent and um, confusion. Um, and then a lot of things that are obstacles for them to find happiness. And yet there's this evocation of, of joy, both from the characters and I think from the collection. Um, is that what the title is going for? You know, you I, I love that review. I don't know that I had actually seen that line. And um, I love that. And I love that you called attention to it. The title story is uh, probably one of the earliest pieces that I wrote that that stayed in the book to the end. And um, when I wrote that story, I was looking for a I was I had this idea I was going to write a story without conflict. You know, I kind of wanted to celebrate a positive thing. And then I what I ended up with when it was done, I realized it was a story where the conflict permeates everything. It's sort of a, a low-level hum of conflict in exist the question of existence. And I think maybe that's what that line is getting at that comes through the whole book, which is how can things be so um wonderful when by conventional terms they are so rugged. And I'm all for it. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. You know? And and thus the perfect title for Thank the you. collection, I think. Thank so. you. Well, all of your all of your books in some way or another interrogate gender roles. Uh, and electric literature noted uh, in this one in particular that the that the portrayal of mental illness and addiction from a from a woman's perspective over twenty years is unusual mm-hmm. to see mm-hmm. in literature. Um, and then I was also really um, struck by. A, a scene in the story referee, which has some minor league hockey player characters, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. men who are big and s- spread out and too, um, too large for the furniture and taking mm-hmm. up lots mm-hmm. of space. Mm-hmm. And these women who are working hard to be less, mm-hmm. literally mm-hmm. physically less. Mm-hmm. Um, I was hoping you'd read that little, just oh, two paragraphs. Sure. Um, okay. Even when he burped, he was gorgeous, all dark curls and olive skin. He had black eyebrows and a curved slope to his nose and full, full lips like you never see on a guy. Mac's half-brother, Kevin, lay on a beanbag chair, his long body spread over the matted shag. They didn't look alike at all, like maybe they secretly didn't even have the same father. But Kevin was hot, too, butterscotch and hazel-eyed. They were boys rich in pot smoke, bedhead, hockey scars. They were too big and lanky for the sagging plaid couch, the flattened beanbag. The sexy thing about hockey players is that they take what they want. Need met. Space, time, whatever. They moved slow, drove fast, laughed when there was no joke. I laughed because they made me dizzy. I weighed nothing. That was where we lived, an anorexic town. Girls worked hard to be less, expect less. When I wanted something, I'd say no. I'd say no thanks, no way. But what I was always saying, really, behind those words, one thing. Love me, motherfuckers. Well, I wanted to unpack that a little because we have both characters, Vanessa and Lou, who stop eating at some point in the book. And there's this urge towards um, 
both physical and emotional disappearance. Yeah. That the that the female characters are participating in in relationship to these larger than life uh, male hockey players, yeah. but also in the collection yeah. as a whole. I think. Yeah. yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the um, maybe what you're you're investigating in that? Well, it's regard? a lack of you know what people call self care now. You know, it's a lack of nurturing. Um, one of the sisters has a pretty bad experience with some food, and I'm not going to go into it because I hope people might pick up the book and read it. But there's a story where she has kind of a repulsive memory, and uh, I was having a little bit of fun with that one when she talks about wanting to have very localized liposuction if people could remove specifically the fat cells associated with that particular meal, yeah. you know. Um, I like that idea. If you could have a doctor go in and just remove your mistakes, right? The bad hamburger. Exactly. <laughs> um but uh, but overall, these are girls who just haven't really learned to take care of themselves. They've grown up to be women that are pretty neglectful. But the other part of that is that it is kind of standard uh, that women should be smaller. And uh, one thing that I like about Portland as it is now is um, women don't really buy into that as much, uh, at least not a lot of them. Um, but that overwhelming idea that women should be small, should take up less space, even if it means... Um, a level of personal sacrifice that probably isn't, that goes beyond, you know, reason. One of the books that this has been compared to is uh, Dennis Johnson's Jesus's Son. I was wondering what you felt like this book was in conversation with. If there were books that you felt like it was either influenced by or that you feel like it's in dialogue with. You know, that's a good question. And um, I love Jesus's Son. I hadn't thought about it as being in direct conversation with that book, but I am honored to be in that company at all. Like I just, I love, I love that book. And, um, that's, that's a great, um, I think it's a fair comparison, you know, structurally and, uh, and an honor, um, that, that that would be a comparison. So I appreciate that in a big way. Um, you know, they're all the writers that influenced me when I first started writing, which would include, you know, one of the authors that you wouldn't see in this, but Raymond Carver, of course, is a Northwest author. And um, when I started putting these together and thinking about how I wanted this, the pieces to work in relation to each other, I was thinking about how Carver gave himself license to put collections of stories together where you could feel the characters existing in the same time and place. And that made it possible for Altman later to make the movie Shortcuts, where he built a world. But Carver never quite built that world, right? I mean, he would give us these pieces, but he didn't he didn't loop them back. And I kind of was wishing he were still around to uh, to have a conversation with about that. Mm. Um, it there's almost I'm not sure what the sense is, but there's some kind of um, it's it's a different if it's a different uh, aesthetic to say I can put all of these next to each other. They will seem to be coming from the same era, the same aesthetic, the same time and place, and the same milieu of, of humans, humanity, but not building the edges of that world. And I'm not far faulting Carver because I, I love his writing, but I'm raising a question. I wanted mine to move past that. Yeah. Uh, but it sounds like it is your thought process was was touching base with Carver. It some, was. It way. was. I was thinking about his work. I was thinking about his collected stories and 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 doing my own thing, which was d different from his. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier that you're working on an essay collection. Is that mm -hmm. the next mm -hmm. big project for you then? Yes. Yes. I yeah. hope it's, it's it's essentially done. 
And um, in some ways, it's a parallel book to this one. This one is fiction. The essay collection is um, nonfiction. And that is an interesting shift for me. But I'm covering a similar span of time in in and in, in place, if that makes sense. But uh, very different focus in the concerns. Yeah. I look forward to reading that. Thank you. It was Thanks. great having you back on Between the Covers, Oh, Monica. great to be here. Thank you so much. It's, it's such a good show. We're talking today to Monica Drake about her latest book, The Folly of Loving Life from Future Tense Books. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO. Volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash between the covers. And also while you're there, check out the growing archive of bonus material available. Thanks for listening. <laughs>